Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This episode of Screaming in the Cloud is sponsored by my friends at Gorilla Stack. Gorilla Stack's a unique automation solution for cloud cost optimization, which, of course, is something near and dear to my heart. By day, I'm a consultant who fixes exactly one problem, which is the horrifying AWS bill. Every organization eventually hits a point where they start to really, really care about their cloud spend, either in terms of caring about the actual dollars and cents that they're spending, or in understanding what teams or projects are costing money and starting to build predictive analytics around that. And it turns out that early on in my consulting work, I spent an awful lot of time talking with some of my clients about a capability that Gorilla Stack has already built. There's a laundry list of analytics offerings in this space that tell you what you're spending and where it goes, and then they stop. Or worse, they slap a beta label on that side of it for remediation and then say that they're not responsible for anything or everything that their system winds up doing. So some folks try and go in a direction of doing doing things to write their own code, such as spinning down developer environments out of hours, bolting together a bunch of different services to handle snapshot aging, having a custom Slack bot that you build that alerts you when your budget's hitting a red line. And this is all generic stuff. It's the undifferentiated heavy lifting that's not terribly specific to your own specific environment. So why build it when you can buy it? Gorilla Stack does all of this. Uh, think of it more or less like if this, then that, IFTTT uh, for AWS. It can manage resources. It can alert folks when things are about to turn off. It keeps people appraised of what's going on. More or less the works. Go check them out. Uh, they're at gorillastack.com, spelled exactly like it sounds. Gorilla like the animal. Stack is in a pile of things. Uh, use the discount code SCREAMING for 15% off the first year. Thanks again for your support, Gorilla Stack. Appreciate it. Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. Today I'm joined by Seth Vargo, a senior staff developer advocate at Google. Uh, thanks for joining me, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me, Corey. Excited to be here today. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So you, until very recently, were at HashiCorp for a while talking, doing effectively the same type of advocacy work, to my understanding. Yeah, I, uh, I left HashiCorp a few months ago uh, to join Google Cloud. Uh, I was working very closely with Tools like Terraform, Vault, Console, Nomad, and um, you know, part of the reason that I left uh, HashiCorp was that I have the opportunity to talk about those tools and uh, some of my former experiences with tools like Chef and Puppet and the communities that surround those tools and uh, how you can use those tools to integrate with Google Cloud and to help drive some product direction around how we can make Google Cloud a great provider to integrate with those different tools. Fantastic. Uh, I have to confess, I personally only started working with GCP for a test project about a month or so ago. And uh, until then, it was always this thing that was sort of 
hanging around the periphery of what I'd been doing. Um, historically, I was a dyed-in-the-wool AWS person just because it's what I encountered in the wild. And I have to say, as I went through the process, I was extremely impressed by some of the nice features that GCP has uh, worked into it. Uh, two that leap to mind even now left a strong impression. The first is the billing aspect of it. All I do is work on cloud bills and terminate all billable resources in this project is a godsend as far as the console goes. The second is the way that it it gives you, it presents anything that you've done in the console by clicking and pointing, it gives you what that looks like in code form. And that is just, for those of us who are of the terrible breed of programmer, is just spectacular. Well, I'm glad you like it. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but that button that you click in the, the UI to disable billing across an entire project and delete all billable resources, there's an API for that too. So you could build a chatbot or a, a script that, that does that as well. Um, everything we do on Google Cloud is, is API first. So anytime you click a button in that web UI, there is a corresponding API call, uh, which means you can build automation, compliance, and testing around you know, these various aspects. Wonderful. And can you expose that from other people's accounts? Because frankly, turning off someone else's website as a service is something I would definitely pay for. Uh, it's definitely possible. Uh, the IAM and permission management in Google Cloud is incredibly powerful. Uh, it leverages the, the same IAM permissions that G Suite has, which is uh, you know hosted Gmail and Calendar and all of those other things. So you can invite effectively anyone with a Google account not just you know at gmail.com, but at any domain, and give them admin or editor permissions across a project, and then they're effectively part of your organization within the scope of that project. Uh, and this is really useful when you think about uh, things like training or um, you know as a consultant uh, being able to see all of your different clients in one dashboard uh, when you log in, but your clients can't see each other. That definitely opens up some possibilities with respect to being able to manage multiple accounts simultaneously, work on different environments. I, I definitely see the appeal. So you are a staff developer advocate at Google. I mean, historically, ad advocacy in some companies is, here's who we are. This is what we do. You could have spent the last 15 years living in a cave, and odds are you still know who Google is and what they do. How does that manifest itself at a company that has long ago become a household name? Definitely. I think that's a great question. Um, it's important to, to recognize that advocacy is not just external advocacy. There's an internal component to it. So yes, everyone knows that you know, Google is a household name. Uh, I, you know, I look to my left here and I have a, a Google home sitting right there. Um, but there's many parts of Google and many features of Google Cloud that, that people aren't aware of. Um, so my job as an advocate, uh, I view it as a help people win. Um, how do I get people who want to use Google Cloud or don't know about Google Cloud the ability to be successful on the platform? And then the flip side of that uh, is what I call strategic complaining. Um, so I am a deeply ingrained in a number of communities, the DevOps communities, the configuration management communities, and people are going to come to me with feedback. They're going to say, hey, this thing is great. They're going to say, hey, this thing is pretty terrible. Uh, and it's my job as an advocate to take that feedback and convert it into meaningful action items for our product teams and say, hey, I've heard this repeating pattern that um, this particular services documentation isn't up to snuff. 
or this service is missing a key feature and work with the product teams to get that prioritized on the roadmap so that the voice of the community is being echoed in the features and the products that are being developed internally. That tends to make a lot of sense, especially as, and I mean no disrespect by this, but Amazon was in the sort of in the cloud space by itself for a long time, as far as public cloud availability goes. And every all the other providers, Google included, were for a long time sort of perceived as late to the party and not uh, able to offer anything approaching as comprehensive an experience. And I think that that narrative, to some extent, is something that Google is still struggling with, even though, uh, and again, I've been deep into the woods on AWS for a long time. When I've used GCP now, I am not left with the impression that it is substandard. I'm not left with a perception that, oh, this is a fun toy, but it's not where serious business happens. It's a fully featured platform. And it at this point, it really comes down to preferences and what's pre-existing in most environments, not a capability story. Do you find that that is a... That is that is a general perception of how the entire world is working? Or am I, frankly, too stuck off in my AWS world at this point? No, Corey, I don't think you're I don't think you're stuck in anything. I think we are moving to a world where small companies, uh, and maybe even mid-sized companies, are gonna pick a cloud provider and they're gonna stick with it. But when we look at large companies, enterprises, Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies, uh, they're gonna pick multiple clouds, actually. And they're gonna do it for one of two reasons. The first is some type of legal compliance issue. So when you think about finance and trading, legally, they're required to not have dependencies on one provider. Um, but the, the bigger reason is that each cloud provider is going to have things that they're good at and things that they're not so good at. So at Google, for example, we have the best Kubernetes engine because we wrote Kubernetes. Uh, we have the folks who run Kubernetes and have been running Kubernetes for a while running GKE, which is our hosted Kubernetes offering. We also have some of the best ML in the world. Uh, we just launched AutoML, uh, which allows you to use our models with your data so you don't have to do training. But then there are other cloud providers that have you know, specific features where they shine. And organizations are going to be able to pick and choose, hey, I want to use this from AWS, this from Azure, and this from Google Cloud. And being able to link those things up and really leverage the true power and elasticity of the public cloud is very, very important for you know these mid-sized and large organizations' long-term success. When I conducted a survey somewhat recently, uh, last year in AWS, I wound up asking a bunch of snarky questions to a bunch of people. A... Almost everyone who answered the survey had some workloads in AWS. I'm sure there was no selection bias whatsoever in that. But there was also a very decent showing of other cloud providers along the way. What I found fascinating, and I wish I'd built in more questions around this, but in a pure AWS context, the breakdown between who was using CloudFormation and who was using Terraform, to step back into your previous role for a second, was neck and neck. It was effectively a 50-50 split, which is incredible. Even though the official word from Amazon has always been cloud formation is the way and the light. Does GCP offer some equivalent of that? Or is the official marching order there, if you want to automate this, use Terraform? Or is there something else I'm just not aware of? That's a great question, Corey. Um, externally at Google, we have a tool called Deployment Manager. Uh, you can check it out on cloud.google.com. 
it's kind of the equivalent of cloud formation. There are you know teams at Google that are staffed full time to do engineering work on that. Um, every API that you get on you know by clicking a button on cloud.google.com or viewing the API docs is accessible via the deployment manager. However, in addition to that, Google Cloud has partnered very closely with a number of open source tools and the companies that correspond to them, one of which being Terraform. Uh, so there's a team, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the, the Cloud Graphite team, uh, Eric Johnson, Dana Hoffman, Emily Yi, and the team over there who are doing these integrations with third-party tools. So to put it in perspective, there are people at Google who are paid by Google who work full-time on open source tools like Terraform and Chef and Puppet so that you can provision GCP resources using the tools that you love. So we don't, you know, we offer deployment manager and if you're only going to use Google and you're never going to use another cloud, then by all means use deployment manager. It's going to work best. It integrates everywhere. But if you're thinking of going multi-cloud or you already have experience with tools like Chef or Puppet or Terraform or Ansible, we want to meet where meet you where you are. We want, you know, if you're an Ansible shop, we want Ansible to be the tool that you use to provision infrastructure. If you're a Terraform shop, we want Terraform to be the tool that you use in, to provision infrastructure. And the way that we support that is by having the Cloud Graphite team work on these tools and make sure that the GCP integrations run deep. Perfect. That's useful to know. And it's something that I think a lot of different shops don't quite have a full awareness of. Do you happen to have any numbers you can share or just general sense of Shops that are using GCP, are they using this or are they tending to go in a Terraform direction? I mean, what, what is the general zeitgeist these days? Um, I don't have numbers on the, the deployment manager side of things, but, you know, there are a few, a few <laughs> um, different customers who are using Terraform. Uh, I can't go into specifics, but, um, you know, it's, it's non-zero and it's significant enough that we have multiple full-time people devoted to, to working on these integrations. Um, and if we weren't seeing adoption and, and it wasn't important to us as a company to support those ecosystems, we wouldn't be investing people in it. At a number of DevOps events where there are people from Google talking about how you folks do DevOps internally, and right around here is the point where I get interrupted by someone who works at Google. We don't do DevOps, we do SRE. What is the difference and what is the breakdown as far as how Google sees things? <laughs> That's a great question, Corey. This is actually something that that I'm focused on and I'm working closely with the SRE team internally at Google to make sure that we're getting the right message out there. To just kind of backpedal just a little bit, there's kind of five key pillars of DevOps. The first is to reduce organizational silos and break down the barriers between teams. The second is that we have to accept failure is the norm. That's things like blameless postmortems. We have to accept that computers are inherently unreliable. Um, so we can't expect perfection. And when we introduce humans into that, uh, we get even more imperfection. The third is uh, implementing gradual change. We want to reduce the mean time to recover or the MTTR. And we realize that small incremental changes are much easier to review and roll back in the event of failure. The fourth piece is tooling and automation, right? There's entire conferences like Monitorama that gather people from the DevOps communities around monitoring, tooling, uh, automation. You know, Chef and Puppet and Terraform obviously fit in that pillar. And then the fifth is to measure everything. Um, no matter what we do in the first four categories, if we're not measuring it and we don't have clear gauges for success, we don't know if we've been successful. And when you think about it, these are actually really abstract topics, right? Nowhere in here did I say use Chef or use Puppet. And nowhere in here did I say that you should hold more meetings to break down the silos or that you should use an elk stack for your measurement and monitoring and logging. 
And for this reason, you can think of DevOps as like an interface in a programming language like Java or uh, a typed language where it doesn't actually define what you do. Instead, it gives you a very high level of what the function is supposed to implement. So there is a function in the interface that says reduce organizational silos. And the way that you implement that is kind of like a class. And SRE, as, as I'm learning, because I'm also new to Google, but the way that I view this is that SRE is a class that implements DevOps. And just like you can have multiple classes that you know implement collection or sortable, um, it's possible to have multiple classes that implement DevOps. So in, in the SRE discipline, there's a very prescribed way for performing those five pillars of DevOps. Um, things like sharing ownership and SLIs and SLOs, you know, moving fast by reducing cost of failure, sharing ownership among product teams and, and automation, um, and you know, very specific tools and technologies that we use within Google, some of which are exposed publicly as part of Google Cloud, that enable the the kind of the DevOps culture and the DevOps mindset to take place. Um, and I think for a while, because there are, there are definitely some folks at Google who have been at Google for many years and aren't deeply involved in these communities like myself, they thought that SRE was the only way. So some of the advocation that I'm doing internally is saying, yeah, you know, SRE satisfies this interface, but, you know, to a certain extent, so do these agile practices over here. And so do these other technologies that other companies are using. And part of the work that I'm doing is, is getting people to realize that we can meet in the middle, right? That part of the reason why we have abstract classes in programming is that there's more than one way to solve a problem. And SRE is just one of those ways. And it's the way that has worked best for Google. Uh, and it has worked best for a number of customers that Google is working with. But there are some other ways too. And we need to be able to support those ways and recognize that there isn't one you know, true path and light to the operational success of a system, but there are in fact many ways to reach that prosperity. There was an entire book written by a team of SREs at Google uh, for O'Reilly, uh, ent entirely on the practice of site reliability engineering. And it's a fantastic book, and the people who wrote it are incredibly skilled, but it almost felt like that book could have been subtitled How to Build Google, to some extent, where a lot of what Google does and how they operate and how they think presupposes not only the tremendous investment in infrastructure that Google has made since its inception, but also Google culture. You take that and you drop it on a mid-sized credit union in the Midwest, for example, and almost every pre-existing condition that Google has no longer applies. How do you wind up driving that sort of cultural change to an environment that looks nothing like Google? You know, one of the things that I got out of reading the SRE book was this is how Google does SRE. And there is a group of people, and I, I've read the book a number of times and I struggle to see this viewpoint. There's a group of people that believe that book is Google telling the world how to do DevOps. And that's simply not the case. I know many of the authors that is in no way what they were trying to get across with that book. It was actually a storytelling exercise. Um, how, how Google does SRE was a thing that we wanted to evangelize with the world um, because we think that it can help people improve their operations. The flip side of that is that organizations need to be cognizant of their own requirements. If I'm a small startup of, say, you know, less than 25 people and operations is someone's part-time job, the SRE kind of playbook uh, isn't relevant yet. Um, it, it doesn't become relevant until we have 
enough users and we have a team and we have these barriers that exist between the product organization and the engineering organization and the site reliability engineering organization that these practices come into play. So when we talk to, say, you know, a mid-sized credit union from the Midwest, the conversation can't be, you know, use this tool with this technology and do exactly this because there is a cultural component to SRE, just like there's a cultural component to DevOps that we have to solve first. And it's okay to, to kind of pick and choose, right? We might we might choose the, you know, the part of the SRE story, which is SLOs and SLIs, which are very strict defined measurements of uptime uh, and availability for a system. But we might not use the the kind of the monitoring and, and metrics that are recommended. We might use our own technology. And it's about picking what's best for the organization. But when we go into these companies and we try to say, hey, you know, you need to change if you want to you want to innovate, we have to be aware of their own roadblocks and their own hurdles and find ways to work around them. Uh, and that's why executive buy-in is really key in these situations. Uh, if you have a couple developers who just want to move faster, you know, they're never going to be able to push these initiatives. But if you have top-level executives and VPs who are saying, okay, we're losing market share, we need to find a way to deliver faster, you'll get a lot more buy-in because it, it truly is, as you said, like a, an organizational culture. Um, and that's true for both DevOps and SRE. I want to be very clear that this next question is not explicitly aimed at Google. I feel I feel the need to warn you first on that one. But Google is always held up, along with several other companies, as a shining beacon of how infrastructure management could be. You, you see conference talks conducted by Googlers. You talk to people about what they're working on, and they paint a very compelling picture. I, a lot of other companies do this, and in a lot of these other companies, I've later gone in and done projects there, and it is a very polite fiction. Internally, I have never yet found a company that didn't think its own infrastructure was, to some extent, a song of ice and tire fire, where you're always going to have things breaking. There, It feels like you're skating on the edge of disaster, but that doesn't make for a compelling keynote at these events. And after I've poured significant amounts of alcohol into various Google people, they start to nod and smile and say, yeah, there are still problems in our infrastructure, even after 20 some odd years and billions invested. It feels like, there, to some extent, it's never a solved problem. There's always more to improve. But to some extent, first off, would you agree that that's true? Um, so I've only been at Google, you know, a, a couple months now. Um, I would definitely say that any company you work at where the recruiter tells you that it's all sunshine and rainbows and there's nothing ever wrong um, is a lie. Every company has problems, some of them technical, some of them cultural. Uh, and I, I don't think Google is an exception to that rule. Um, being a company that's been around for a very long time, there's certainly technical debt. There have certainly been you know, outages while I've been here. The one key difference is the way that Google handles that from a, a cultural perspective. Um, you know, We focus on fixing the problem and making sure it doesn't happen again as opposed to finding out who did what and why they did it and, and what were they thinking. So there's a very blameless culture, which I found very unique to Google. Um, it's like a, a top priority in any time there's an outage and the way they mitigate those outages. So, you know, having the ability to say, oh, this particular cluster is not having a good day. Let's let's shift in real time all of the workloads from that cluster to a new one. And a great example of, of something like that is whenever we had the Meltdown Inspector um, vulnerabilities here a few months ago, 
like Google was able to migrate people's workloads in real time without downtime as they were upgrading the uh, or applying the patches for these CPU vulnerabilities. And that's that's a technology, right? That's not a culture. That's a technology that's unique to Google. Uh, we wrote about it on the cloud platform blog, and that's that's something that that makes Google, you know, a, a unique. Uh, in a unique position where we can prioritize availability and reliability for our customers, even if behind the scenes there are some fires going on. Yeah, and I think that's very fair. And the the counterpoint too, and the reason I, I keep harping on that particular area of things is I did this myself and I've talked to other people who continue to do it now. They'll go to a conference and they'll see a talk that is presented by one of these bright lights of tech. And then they go back to their own jobs at the end of the conference and they feel sad because their environments are, from their perspective, far worse than what was just described. It feels like there's not a ongoing sense of empathy or awareness in many cases that everyone's environment has problems, everyone's culture has problems, and this is built on a continuing series of incremental change. How do you find that that is being addressed these days? I don't think it is. Um, I mean, you and I have both done keynotes at big conferences, and there's a lot of hand waving. There's a lot of storytelling that goes on, and um, you know, maybe as an industry, we need to to tell more war stories instead of the pleasure stories. Uh, I I spoke at a an event that Fastly did, the CDN company, uh, and they asked me to speak about uh, an outage that we had. And it was different for me. Like, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I don't feel, I feel like talking about failure publicly without a resolution is often a, a negative connotation. Um, so as an industry, maybe we need to start talking more about failure. And if at the end of the talk, the answer is, it just never happened again, and we don't know why, that's okay to talk about. But I, I also think that that's not going to get accepted um, into you know a CFP process. People, as conference organizers, they want to see sunshine and rainbows um, because that sells tickets, that makes people happy. So it is a bit of a systemic problem is how do we talk about these things in the open without putting people in this like, well, what was the resolution or or how did you fix it? Because you know sometimes sometimes computers are weird. I feel like there's an opportunity here for failure con or something similar where all we talk about is the failures that we've seen in various infrastructures, and some of them don't have resolutions. I also feel like there needs to be a standing rule for a conference like that, that, well, actually, have you considered is not a valid question to ask during the Q&A portion. <laughs> yes, after listening to this for 45 minutes, I'm sure you have the answer to a problem that has stymied entire teams of engineers for months. Yes, based upon the window I've given you into this. It, and, and that's always the challenge, too. But you're right. I, I think that it is a negative thing that companies and organizers don't necessarily want to see, but it's the real world. It's how these things work. There's a whole laundry list of things I have that I do not understand about why my systems behave in certain ways under certain conditions. And if they're not causing downtime or not painful enough... I'm never going to have the time to dig into them or frankly, maybe not even have the intellect to dig in and figure out why it does that. Uh, the, so the answer I put around is I just draw a circle around all of that and caption it, computers are terrible, the end. 
So that's actually interesting because what you just described is actually a, a key component of the SRE discipline, uh, which is this thing called toil, like foil, but with a T in the front. Um, and it's work tied to systems um, that either we don't understand or it doesn't make sense to automate away, um, right? So if there's that one service that goes down, you know, once a year, but it's highly available, so it doesn't matter, and someone has to connect to a prod system and restart it or, or kick it to reboot, like there's no point in investing, you know, 10, 15 hours to build automation and detection around that. Uh, instead, let's just, you know, invest 15 minutes every year and do it. And, you know, part of the SRE discipline is about mitigating that, right? So when that system goes down, does another one automatically pick up so that we're not rushing to get it back online? And then we can, you know, kick it kind of in our spare time. Um, you know, I, I have a similar bubble. I, I don't call it computer. Computers are terrible. Um, mine is that computers are unpredictable because sometimes they do things in the opposite direction, which we fail to recognize. For example, I, I have my blog hosted uh, on a, a, a cloud instance that is rated for a certain amount of traffic. And it was on the front page of Hacker News one day and I got way more traffic than it was rated to receive and it never died or melted down and the CPU didn't even go above 80%. Uh, and that was one of those where, you know, computers aren't terrible. They're just unexplained or inexplicable in some ways um, where it was like the metrics clearly dictate that this machine should have melted, um, but it didn't. And I'm not going to question it. We're going to move on with our lives. One last topic I want to get into before we call it an episode. As you see customers coming into GCP, and I understand you haven't been there very long and your, your experience may not be representative. Uh, first, are they generally coming from other cloud providers or are they coming from on-premise data center deployments? I mean, I think there's a healthy mix. Um, like you said, I don't have much insight, but I, I do think that there's a number of folks who are trying to do Lift and shift, um, which I personally don't work a lot with lift and shift. My team in particular works with what we call move and improve. Um, that's a trademark. It's not It's not actually a trademark, but uh, you heard it here first. And I may be stealing it later and claiming it as my own. <laughs> so move and improve is this idea that, you know, we have VMs in a data center and we want to move them to the cloud. We could lift and shift and, you know, use something like... Um, like a, a VM on the cloud and any cloud provider, right? Or we could make them cloud native in the process and leverage cloud provider specific technologies like, you know, Google Functions or, um, you know, hosted Kubernetes engine or some type of uh, just re-architect the application and make it cloud native so that it behaves well in a highly available environment where the network isn't always 100% reliable or, you know, the machine might be moved or the application might be killed and restarted. Um, so my team is focused a lot on move and improve, not so much lift and shift. We have folks at Google who are definitely dedicated to lift and shift and making those customers successful. But I focus particularly more on the move and improve scenario for those customers in their own data centers. Um, and then for customers that are coming from another cloud provider or are coming greenfield, they have an idea and they want to run it somewhere. Um, I work with them pretty closely as well. Um, and that's where you know, tools and our integrations with things like Terraform and Chef and Puppet and Cloud Foundry, et cetera, uh, run deep because, you know, if they already have experience from another company or already have something running somewhere else, we want to make sure to meet them where they are. Which makes an awful lot of sense. But as a company goes through a cloud selection process and they look at the big four in the space, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alibaba, all four of those companies have very different cultures and very different ways of managing infrastructure. Does that have, a, have any bearing or have an impact 
on how they're going to manage their environment once it moves into one of those providers' clouds. In other words, if you're moving something into Azure, are you likely to manage it differently from a philosophical standpoint than if you're moving it into GCP? You know, realistically, there are tiny differences, but the the cloud native paradigm, right? There, there's some few key pillars here, um, like does it handle restarts well? Is it highly available? Um, can it be containerized, uh, even though containers aren't necessarily required for cloud native? You know, does it package all of its dependencies with it? Uh, can it run on different operating systems? Right, all of these things are generic, right? They're not specific to a cloud provider. When we start leveraging provider-specific technologies, right? AWS Lambda and Google Functions are similar technologies, right? They're both serverless technologies, but there's a little bit of configuration differences. The little, you know, some things here, some things there. So there's not a pure mapping. Um, but from the application level, I don't think that there's cloud provider specific things. Um, at the infrastructure level, there are definitely certain things, um, but I don't think that they're specific enough that you know, it would actually hinder you from moving from one to the other. Okay, thank you. It's always been a strange question in that, and on the one hand, it's, you can approach a cloud provider as more or less, oh, they just provide us virtual computers. So what they do internally and as a culture and how they think about the world really doesn't matter all that much to how you run your environment once you understand the constraints versus if you go something in a full, more or less in a full cloud native direction, then it turns into something that's very, well, how do they think about this? How should I be architecting this? And I mean, to some extent, if you gaze long enough into the Google abyss, do you become Google in some small way as far as how you think about operations, how you think about the responsible running of environments? And I, I think it depends on what you're running too. You know, one of Google's big market segments is high-performance computing. Um, so people doing like genomics research, et cetera, um, where they might have some on-premise data and then they need elasticity of the cloud where, like you said, they're just launching VMs, right? They view the cloud as an extension of compute and they're launching them for a couple hours. They're running very complex genomic simulations or DNA stuff that I don't understand because I haven't taken a biology class in 12 years, but it's very important. Don't get me wrong. The work is important. I just don't understand it. And they're... Uh, what they look for in a cloud is very different than someone who's looking to run microservices, for example. And that that concept there is, it's different, right? So it's not just about what does the cloud provider offer. It's also like, what problem are you trying to solve? And that's that's a key a key thing that I think we forget about every once in a while. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time, Seth. Uh, before we wind up calling it an episode, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to draw attention to and have people check out? In the short term, not so much. In the long term, you should look for uh, a lot of the stuff that Google is going to be doing in the DevOps space. Um, the things I talked about specifically with SRE and and uh, how SRE relates to DevOps, you should see some content uh, coming out shortly that will uh, hopefully explain that in a lot clearer. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time, Seth, and enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, Corey. You too. This has been Screaming in the Cloud, and I'm Corey Quinn. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.